Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the PGA of Alberta podcast. My name is Bryce McDermott, and I am the GM and executive golf professional at the Windermere Golf and Country Club in Edmonton, Alberta. Uh, my guest today, no stranger to anyone in the golf scene in Alberta, a uh, strong junior career, uh, played collegiately in the United States, went on to play professionally uh, on the nationwide tour. Most recently, uh, a Windermere board member and our current club president, uh, looking forward to talking about uh, his journey in golf. Uh, thanks for joining me, Barrett Jarosh. Thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. So let's kick things off. Uh, obviously, you know, this game has grabbed so many of us uh, in different ways. So tell me a little bit about your start in golf and, and what got you interested in the game. Uh, start was, I mean, as a kid, uh, my, my parents were both very athletic and played a lot of different sports so I was really um, introduced to pretty much every single sport from diving to racquetball to, to everything so I we played golf in the summers um, usually with my family and um, as I kind of went further down the road um, I, I got to meet some people that had connections actually at Windermere and uh, people that I played actually baseball with and got offered to uh, to join as a sponsored junior and that's really when I started playing more than you know five to ten times a summer was uh, was when I joined as a sponsored uh, junior back in 1996 when I and that's kind of my my intro it was you know, nothing more than, hey, come down for a summer. It was really cheap uh, back then. Um, I want to say it was maybe two or three hundred bucks for the entire summer. And I would get dropped off um, in the summer and play tons and tons of golf. And that's really my, my introduction more than just very, very recreationally playing once or twice kind of on holidays. That's when I really started playing. Awesome. So in your junior days, maybe what got you interested? Was there a specific moment that got you interested in, in playing a little bit more competitively and taking the game on a little bit more? I would say um, I actually started uh, that first year. The Edmonton Journal ran golf tournaments that were actually run at Rumble Park um, at the executive course there. And completely uh, different age groups, I think, starting at 10 all the way up, I think, right until you were 18. And that was my first, I decided to go out and, and compete, and that was where I first played tournament golf, was there. And uh, I, I fell in love with the competition of it. I've, I've always been a very competitive person, but uh, being in an environment that wasn't a team sport, um, really, I hadn't done too much of that. I'd played individual sports and done some individual things, but not competed. And I really, really enjoyed it. So um, that was kind of my my introduction to uh, competitive golf and led me to what I would probably say is uh, the, maybe the springboard for me taking it a little more serious and playing in more tournaments was uh, playing in the Alberta Bantam. I think it's still held at Riverside in, uh, in Red Deer, but that was my first ever what I would call big um, professional golf tournament, and I absolutely 
loved it. And so from then on, it was city junior, city medalist, um, you know, whether it was Alberta Bantam or the junior juvenile or McLennan Ross, or I was playing in anything I could. And, uh, and I really, really enjoyed it. Awesome. Yeah, it's great that uh, some of those things that you talk about, even 25 years removed now, like McLennan Ross, I know so many of our kids here at the club are involved in that. And it's great that they have kept those programs going and an avenue for, for juniors to participate in things like that. Yeah, I still run into uh, Dunk Mills, who I think is still involved in that. I run into him at the odd Oiler game and we always reminisce over the, some of the old names and what some of the guys are doing. So it's uh, it's it's fantastic that um, that there's people like that in this province that still invest their time and effort into that. Yeah, things like that don't uh, aren't successful without people like that. So a huge testament to 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 him and to to what they what they do for for juniors in our city. Yeah. Was there a particular result or anything that you're most proud of from your from your junior kind of playing career? Anything that stands out on the on the resume at all? Um, Overall, I mean, the, being able to win the juvenile, um, you know, was it was a pretty big thing. I mean, when I won that, um, Dustin Risden was the ultimate junior golfer and highly touted not only in the province but all over Canada. And um, you know, so to get to play with him, I, I'm obviously younger than him, but play with him and be able to win the, the 16 and under when he won the junior. Um, really, I guess, was kind of one of my first tests of playing with the best of the best at a young age. And uh, so, you know, that one kind of stands out because it, it meant a lot to me and it was maybe some validation that cheaper I'm, I'm actually somewhat decent at playing this game. Um, winning the Alberta Junior was, um, was something that uh, I'm very proud of. Um, and, uh, and I sure enjoyed it. Those junior golf days were, were probably the best days of my golf career, best and, and early professional days. Um, but, you know, overall, I would say national. I mean, in, when I was eight, no, sorry, when I was 17, um, nationals were at Crown Isle. And I think that's the year Mike Mazie won. Uh, Scott McNeil from Calgary finished second, and I finished third. And so for Alberta to go one, two, three at nationals, um, with I think Mike was the only player that was on our A interprovincial team. I don't think Scott was on it, and I was on the B team. And so you know that that's something. I mean, I obviously didn't win it, but just very proud of of where I finished to be able to medal, and the fact that Alberta had um, had one, two, three. And, and we were that good uh, at that point in time. We, that's, that's something I'm pretty proud of. Yeah, fantastic. So at what point did you, you know, you started to play more competitive golf, started to see some good results? Did you actively start pursuing, you know, potentially going down to down south on a, you know, to play collegiate level golf? Or were there some people that started reaching out to you? Or tell me a little bit about how that kind of came to fruition. So when you sent me these questions, um, ahead of time, I was, I was kind of reading through that one and, um, you know, thinking back, gosh, I really had to think of how the heck did the whole scholarship thing come about and where it came from was there were, I guess the first thought I got of it were some older guys, um, 
with Danny Saul, with the Scrimger boys. Guys were going on on golf scholarships and were playing away in the States. Um, even some people at Windermere, that um, Greg Stephenson was someone I played with, and his parents still play down there. But they were going away on golf scholarships. And back then, the, the way they kind of did that, unless you were a top player and you got, you were getting heavily recruited, which in Canada, there were very few that at that time that, that had that status. You got the Ping All-American College Book. And I remember it because Tim Heron was on the, the cover of that book, Lumpy. And in that book was all of the, the college programs that offered either Div 1, Div 2, or Div 3. They said what the school was, they listed the coach, um, they listed the contact info, and you wrote letters with a resume of what you'd done, and you sent it out. And I think I started doing that when I was 17. Uh, and then when I got to when I was 18, um, I started having some people call the house and show up at tournaments and do some recruiting. And I had a couple opportunities to go to some schools and eventually decided, um, you know, to go to University of Denver based on proximity, climate, um, the business school they had there. And, um, and, and for me at that point, which I look back, I don't know, maybe it was the best choice, but at the time it was important was getting an opportunity to play right away. Um, you know, so many teams you go in, especially as a Canadian, um, you know, your mandatory red shirts and for whatever reason that was always important to me at that, at that point was I wanted to go in and I was going away to school to play golf and I wanted to play. And how many years were you in, in Denver for? in Denver for three and a half. I left early to play on the national team and so um, unfortunately didn't graduate. Um, but um, I have memories for and friends for an absolute lifetime. The program is, is fantastic. It's, it's really excelled since I was there. Um, some of the products coming out of there, some of the young players are fantastic. And where that program is now, um, along with the level of education coming from that school. It's a, it's a fantastic program. So I'm very honored and proud to have went there. Yeah, I mean, I think places like Denver are similar to Alberta. We get, you know, based on weather, get maybe rubbed with a bad brush that we, some people aren't able to, just because you can't go outside and do it as much. But, you know, from my three-year experience here in Alberta, people here are, are golf crazy, and uh, the talent and caliber of golf is as high in Alberta as it is in, in any province in the in the country. So, absolutely, and and the the thing is, of Denver that lots of people don't don't realize is golf courses are open pretty much twelve months of the year. They they might cut six or eight different hole locations and cap off the ones they can't because the ground freezes for periods of time, but. You know, they've got a few indoor, outdoor heated stalls. You can hit balls. And, and so for the most part in Denver proper, you can hit a golf ball outside um, a heck of a lot more than here. And um, I'm still a strong believer also that having some time away from the game, um, forced by weather, um, I don't think it's a terrible thing for a young person to uh, be used we talk, uh, I mean, the look at the PGA Tour event this past week, and we've got guys that talked about they didn't touch a club since the Ryder Cup, and they were just away from the game. 
and um, not competing, maybe hitting some balls here and there, working on a couple of things, working out. But, you know, taking time away, I think, is a very, very healthy thing. And so that, that's one thing people say, well, in Canada, you can't place it. Well, not necessarily a bad thing. No. No, I'm sure, yeah, this past week you didn't hurt John Rahm or Patrick Cantley and those guys much. I mean, I think your head needs a break. And in some instances, too many of these young kids treat it like a job and it becomes not fun um, pretty quickly. So I, I, I do feel I agree 100% that that healthy break is is not a bad thing. And if weather forces that to do some other things, then, then that's okay too. Absolutely. Yeah. So at what point did you decide to turn pro? Your three and a half years at school, and this was this was the next step in the journey for you at that point. Yeah, and I, it wasn't like it was a a well planned out, um, you know, career path or, or choice or whatever. But um, you know, in, in going to school and, and winning um, a few Division One golf tournaments, um, you, you gain some confidence, and, and I've been fortunate enough even as a junior to get some exemptions into professional events, um, whether they were at Windermere or, or other courses. So um, I, again, enjoying the competition, having a little bit of validation that I, I kind of belong somewhere in the, in the picture and, and could probably have a future in the game. Um, after playing on, on the, the national team for, for a summer after I left school. That was kind of the, the plan was I'm going to Q school and I'm going to, to turn professional. So I went to Canadian to a Q school, uh, the fall qualifier, which um, was in Ontario. And um, I ended up coming away with that with additional status, not, uh, not full status. So I got into a decent amount of events. Um, but I still uh, you know, was an ultimate or had to try to qualify to get into a couple. And then the following year, went back to school and got my first job. Awesome. How was, how did, how did life on tour, you know, initially, especially, um, how was it different from, say, you know, junior collegiate events to making that transition to playing in professional events? What was, what was maybe the main difference in that, in that step? Well, the main difference is you go, um, you know, from in college golf, you've got everything planned out for you. You've got your travel, you've got your, your, your van, you've got all of this stuff planned out for you. Um, you're not doing any of the budgeting. It's all covered by your, your head coach or maybe a uh, travel agent for the school or, or whoever that takes care of that. And all of a sudden, you have to do all of that. And you're in your early 20s and maybe don't make the best decisions uh, at, at every juncture. But um, no, the biggest difference was honestly all of the other stuff around golf. Um, there's the obvious difference of cheapers. I'm not, I'm, I'm playing to compete, but I'm also playing for a paycheck now. And I can see that it costs me this much to play an event. And I need to make something because I'm not independently wealthy. I'm working in the off season to afford to travel around and, and I need to make a little bit of money and I want to see results. So th there's that difference, but hands down, the thing that 
at least for me, took up most of my time and effort and was was planning. Where am I staying? And do I have a billet? Who's catering for me? Where am I eating? Um, rental cars, all of that stuff. Um, that's uh, it's a pretty big learning curve in that uh, in that area because there's not a lot of teenagers or or uh, people in their early twenties that plan a whole bunch of that stuff. So that that was a yeah, lots of different logistics to work out and always typically in different cities, right? So it's not like you have the same connection each time. It's a different phone number. It's a different and trying to manage your time. And I assume trying to work on your game through that too. Yeah. So balancing a lot of different things, which like you said, when coach had everything mapped out, all you had to do was worried about teeing it basically. Yeah show up on time when you're told to be there. That was about the biggest worry in school. Yeah. So life on tour. And I, again, I've got to know some people that have played on tour and things like that. And I think a real important thing about being out there is obviously, I mean, if you're able to have a team, but if not your friends um, and kind of your, your inner circle as a support system. So maybe talk a little bit about, you know, some of the friends you had on tour and, and those relationships and how important they were. And I, I assume they're still friends of friends of yours to this day. Some of those, those guys that you were out there with. Yeah. I mean, that's um, often when we get together or we still have group chats and, and stuff like that. And, and if there's a wedding or a function where we're able to a few of us get together, um, man, we, we flock back to our early days when, we were all trying to figure out the same thing and how to travel and, and everyone was on a budget. So you piled as many guys into a hotel room to try to make ends meet. And those were um, some of my, my most fond years I will remember for the rest of my life. And the people that you did that with um, will, will always be very close friends. Um, the memories of, and it's not even necessarily personal success. Um, or things that happen to you and it's, but it's things that you know you accomplish together or I mean, lots of times um, we were on the budget and we were sharing the car so if you missed the cut we would just offer I'll caddy for you on the weekend and it saved the guy caddy fees and he got another player as a caddy and so you were just you were helping every you know each other out so um, no the the friendships and, and we often joke that there was we had the west side guys and we had the east guys so you had kind of the ontario boys and you had the bc alberta boys and saskatchewan and and we we all played in similar tournaments together and then obviously the bigger national tournaments against each other in college and whatnot and amateur golf and playing on teams together it was always uh, that was a fun uh, fun kind of rivalry where it was ontario kind of Quebec and, and some of those East guys against us West boys. But um, no, the, the friendships and the, the travel partners and stuff, um, yeah, we'll be lifelong friends. And it's kind of the game and our lives have scattered us to, to different parts of the world, um, but we still keep in touch, absolutely. Fantastic. So of your years that you spent out there, I mean, obviously you played – uh, nationwide tour for a few years is there is there a memory that stands out as something I mean competitively wise you know results maybe not or it but is there something that stands out as a kind of a single moment that maybe stand above the rest or something that you'll always remember 
I mean, playing my first PGA Tour event was really cool. Um, playing the Canadian Open was, uh, I mean, that was fantastic. And being, um, having that maple leaf on your bag and having people follow you around and stuff, that's, that's something I'll remember for the rest of my life. Um, as far as, uh, I guess, a cool memory, it would probably be um, Montreal. I want to say it was 2009, uh, I think 2008, 2009. But um, I, was, I was playing really well. I had my family out there. I actually had my younger sister was caddying for me that week, and that was that was sure fun. She's um, she's been around golf. She's I think forced to travel around with my parents to watch some of my events, which um, you know is bad. It's not like I guess sitting in an arena watching your your brother play hockey. You're uh, you're out usually in a nice spot, um, but. Having her caddy for me, and, and I was playing really well, and, and I botched the final hole um, and ended up in a playoff. Um, and uh, and Graham Gillette ended up uh, ended up winning. Actually, no, um, I botched the last hole to miss the playoff. That one I didn't make the playoff, and uh, you know so it was a letdown. But uh, then my good friend of mine, Graham, ended up winning, and so it was still. Very exciting um, for my family, for me, um, you know, watching him break through and also just having the, the competitive juices flowing at that level when you know, people are flocking to the last couple of holes at the end of the tournament and uh, there's lots of leaderboard watching and that. That's, um, yeah, that was, that was a really fun moment. Awesome. Yeah, great to have the family, family connection to a, uh... You know, maybe a close call will always be something I'm sure you, you remember for as long as you live. So that's uh, that's incredible. What was it like standing on the first tee at your first Canadian Open? What were the nerves like? Uh, you know what? They actually weren't that bad. Okay. Um, it's, um, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't as freaked out as I thought. I was probably in, and when I played, I mean, my, my strength was my ball striking. So I was never really nervous getting a golf shot. Put me on the green and have me make a, a three foot putt in a different scenario. So I was probably more nervous after I uh, picked up my coin on the first green and had to roll my first putt than, uh, than I was on the first tee. But um, okay. no, I'm just trying to think nerves. I'm probably the most nervous I've ever been in my life and probably will ever be was um, PGAQ school. And, and you asked my, my professional, I guess, memory or something stands out. And I guess. That would be probably a big one because that was when Q School was for the PGA Tour and the Nationwide, all in one, on two courses. It's six days of competitive golf, which is, if, for people that haven't done it, it's the, one of the most grueling things ever. Um, yeah. 108-hole marathon. That was, uh, you know, that's actually probably the, the one thing I will never forget because it was, a roller coaster of emotions for a week. We had horrible weather. I think there were like 12 weather delays in and amongst trying to figure out what you were doing next year, what your future was, and you're you know, passing. David Duval was there, Jeff Maggart was there. There's a whole bunch of guys playing to up their status or whatnot. It was just it's a really cool um, experience that. Uh, you know, unfortunately, it's how things have changed and how, we, how you get to tour that doesn't exist anymore. Um, that's six 
round grinder. But um, yeah, that that was something I'll, I'll always remember. Awesome. Yeah, I saw the uh, the scorecard in Cam's when I was in Cam's garage, and certainly kind of a cool. Even looking at that, I was like, "That's that's neat." So um, very very cool. Um, so obviously, after a few years out there, you decided to, um, you know, stop playing and come back and, and take over the family business, which has obviously worked out quite well. And I know that you're quite happy with that. Uh, did you take any sort of a break from playing golf when you when you left the professional ranks and, and, and kind of came back and started working or did you start playing recreationally right away? Um, I played recreationally a little bit here and there. Um, honestly, I, I didn't, I didn't really have a desire to play that much. Um, the, you know, that was 2012 and, you know, so it'd been the better part of, of seven years that I'd been playing professionally, um, on different tours and whatnot. And so, um, I didn't really know what golf meant. To me, I always, I obviously picked it up as an amateur and enjoyed it for the love of the game and, and still did through my professional playing, but it changed. And so when that stopped um, and you're trying to, to work hard at your, your occupation, which is no longer golf, it was tough to figure out where I fit. So I didn't, I didn't play a whole bunch. I would still play with friends, but. I didn't play a whole bunch because I, I really had a tough time between competing and trying to shoot a really, really low score and having the expectations that you have when you're hitting a golf ball every single day and you know where yeah. it's going to, um, you know, getting out on the weekend and uh, rusty and whatnot. So, um, yeah, for the first, I'd say at least year, if not two years, I didn't play that much. Um, because I didn't really have a desire to. So at what point um, did you kind of make the decision to to join kind of Windermere again and immerse yourself in, in club life? Um, I, I'd always been around and even while I was, um, while I was away uh, during my playing career, I was still always involved with Windermere. So I just friends there, people that were there from when I was a junior. My family joined, um, you know, after I did. And uh, when I was away at school, they, uh, my parents bought a share and, and were part of the club. So I'd always stayed in touch. And, and once I'd settled into uh, my career here and uh, settled into the business, I I was looking for something. Um, you know, I, I play men's league hockey and, and, uh, and stuff, but golf was something I wanted to get back into. I still enjoy it. I enjoy the challenge of it. Um, and I was able to find, um, I guess, find the recreational aspect of it again and the joy in that. And wearing shorts, I've been golfing shorts in years, it seemed like. And, um, you know, riding in a power cart and being able to not take it as seriously as I had. And so that would have been Probably 2014 um, is when I started to uh, to really enjoy it again and enjoy getting out with friends and, and, and playing um, kind of from that that point of view. 
Yeah, awesome. Tell me a little bit about, you know, how important has, you know, the club element been in your in your family life? I know you mentioned your parents joined and I know that your wife Megan now is an active participant. You know, how important is that in 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 the Drosh family and, and your lifestyle? That's huge. I mean, it's where we spend um, a lot of our time. Um, my my wife at golf is a is a junior in BC where she grew up and so when we met, we go on the holiday. She was always up for playing around the golf here and there. And, and uh, so, uh, you know, having her show some interest and, and at the start, it wasn't, um, probably wasn't the greatest feeling for her joining the club where, you know, she was significantly younger than a lot of other members and um, coming into an environment where she didn't know a lot of other women, but just the kind of person she is. Um, I've made some very, very good friends and um, uses the club more than I do and is involved in the club um, at a very, very high level and just enjoys it, gets together with her girlfriends from Windermere outside of golf season. And it's a big, big part of her life. Uh, we enjoy it as a couple. And then, uh, you know, being able to have my parents down there as well, it's uh, it's certainly nice to walk around the club and, and walk in the family and, and be able to uh, you know, have my father on my men's league team and, and stuff like that. It's, it's, uh, it's, it is a, a, a large part of our life. Fantastic. So in um, 2018, you became a, a board member here at Windermere. You know, what kind of interested you in getting involved at that point? And, and, and you know, why, why did you? decide to get involved as a you know a volunteer a board member a very important position but it but it is a volunteer uh role at the club so what you know why and and what interested you well i um i mean after being a sponsor junior when i joined um i went through a bunch of different cycles i was a um, i was an elite um junior member where um you know, I got to play there for free once I started competing at a very high level, but I would have to write some articles for the club and put in some hours of service working in the back shop, working the picker. Um, then I, I worked there in the off season a little bit in the pro shop and I bartended a little bit. And um, so the club always gave me a home, somewhere to play. The practice facility there was fantastic. The golf course was excellent. I always had an opportunity to play in men's nights as a, as a junior. Um, and I met a whole bunch of people, people that helped sponsor me when I turned professional. The club had given me so much and actually had even given me an honorary share um, that I gave back once I stopped playing uh, professionally. But it, it hit me, you know, once, kind of flipped over to uh, a career outside of golf and was there as a, as a shareholder that um, I, I just wanted to give back to a place that gave me um, a huge part of my life, gave me a big part of who I am today still, um, gave me a lot of memories and, uh, and was a second home for most of my life and, and continues to be. So, you know, I looked at it and, and being married, having a wife that's involved in the club, not having children yet. Um, I thought to myself, 
I want to give back. Probably not going to have any more energy as life goes on than I do now while I'm young. And, um, you know, I have uh, quite a few friends down there that have served on the board in the past or, or did at the time. And it just seemed like uh, I, I wanted to, to give back. I wanted to also find out how the club works um, and, and hopefully participate in you know, continuing the club to flourish and, uh, and hoping it to succeed into the future. And, and, you know, my goal in joining was, was kind of just that, help out where I could. Um, obviously, my, my thought at the start was I helped to be more golf-related after being at so many facilities over my life, um, talking about force conditioning and stuff like that, because I had experienced a little bit of that all over the world. But, um, um, you know, as it, as it turned out and I got onto it, I got involved in some other areas um, of, of, the, of the board of directors. And uh, yeah, it's uh, kind of come to a point now where um, sitting as a as a president um, is kind of a a surreal thing right now. Yeah. Did you ever think you'd become president? Like, was that ever a thought when you got involved? Or I thought it was a potential, but I kind of, to be honest, I kind of thought that I would serve you know, a, a short term to begin with, figure out how how it went. Um, come off the board, play, and then probably get involved after my work career was over and, and you know, had a lot of time later in life uh, to give back and thought, you know, potentially then um, there, there might be a, an opportunity, but never did I think that that, that would come so quickly from, uh, from when I started. Awesome. Just, uh, besides keeping your GM in line, um, tell me a little bit about some of the responsibilities that are involved with with being a president. Because I think it's, at least from my vantage point, it's it's eye opening to a lot of people when they when they come into that role. You know, so maybe tell me a few of the things that are involved with your role as a president. Has and has anything caught you maybe surprised you a little bit so far in your six months um, into your presidency? Or is responsibilities. I mean, uh, dealing with the general manager, so dealing with yourself, whether that's uh, that's probably a bigger pain in the ass for you than it is me. But, um, you know, dealing closely um, on on little things, getting brought up to date as to what's happening, um, kind of constantly being in the know, more so than, than I was when I was just a, a regular director. Um, you know, you end up sometimes being the first point of contact or where a lot of uh, member communication comes directly to. So being able to, um, to receive that, respond to it, um, you know, try to, I mean, it's always a fine line in trying to keep people updated. People typically, most of the communication is people want to know. They don't understand. They have questions. They want to know the inner workings of things. So, Obviously, with confidentiality and whatnot, uh, you, you try to give people a, a feel for what's happening without you know, breaching any of your, your director responsibilities, and, and that does take up quite a bit of time. Um, and you, I guess as, as the president, you, um, you kind of have the, the responsibility to, um, 
to be a, a poster member. You, you want to do things the right way. You want to lead by example and, and how you carry yourself um, when you're around the club. You, you have a responsibility to, to act on everyone's interests, not just those of people that are the same, you know, either playing ability as yourself or age group as yourself, but the membership as a whole. And I think that's challenging for, for lots of people, um, whether they're directors or a president is, and, and on any board, is being responsible both for the totality of the organization that you're, you're representing and putting aside your personal opinions or what um, to, to make sure that you're you are acting on everyone's best behavior. Um, as far as the biggest surprise, probably be just the, the frequency of member communication, you know, and, uh, and the, the amount of that people reach out and have questions or question things that are happening or uh, bring things to your attention. Um, you know, when when you're uh, when you're going around as a member and utilizing the club. Yeah, you talk about it with your group of friends and stuff, but you just, I think until all of that communication or lots of it starts coming to you or coming to you through the, the general manager, um, you, uh, I think lots of people will be surprised at, at what that volume is. Yeah, no, uh, I, I would agree. Um, talk about like the private club industry as a whole. Um, I think I think some private clubs or private clubs can be misunderstood a little bit by the general public. Maybe in your eyes, is there a misconception that the public have, you know, about what happens behind the gates just because it's not necessarily, you know, accessible by everyone? Yeah, I mean, I I look at the private club and, um, I, you know, when I look at people and their view of that, I mean. People look at it as, oh, this is, a, you know, it's an entitlement uh, that people get to go down there. And, and um, you know, what, what a private club really is, is people that just have a deep love of something and choose to spend their money and their time and their effort at that. It, I look at it as, it, you know, you look in your people that collect vintage snowmobiles and they spend tons of money on it and they fix them up and, because that's what they have a passion to do. There's people that um, enjoy racing cars and, and fixing that up. There's people that collect stamps. There's people invest a whole bunch of things and a whole bunch of time and money into things that they enjoy doing. And the golf course is very much the same. It's people that have a passion for the game of golf. It's people that want to spend more of their time doing so. Um, and so they belong to an organization where there are more people like-minded like that that put their efforts in a similar direction. So I, yes, there are people that belong to a club to say that they, can, they belong to a club. That, that, that's going to exist. But as a whole, a private club is, is really just a very specific community of people that gather together because they have a passion for, for something that that club provides. And I think when, when you look at it in that light, um, I, I think it's maybe not as 
um, a hoity-toity, wealthy, um, you know, kind of feeling idea to people. Um, and that's really what, you know, the majority of a private club stands for. Um, you know, I think another misconception is, you know, people just feel uncomfortable or too comfortable at private clubs. You know, people then have the idea, well, if I buy in, I can do whatever I want on that property. Um, and that's, that's not, not a great idea and, and not a, an appropriate uh, train of thought. You, you're doing that to belong to a community that believes in golf and, and golf has rules and standards and, and so you're, you're belonging to that community and you have a responsibility to fit in. And then you have the people that um, are extremely intimidated by private clubs because of, you know, oh my gosh, there's all these rules and it should be uncomfortable. Well, it's, it's not. It's, it's, a, it's a normal golf viewing environment. It's just it's for people that are prioritize it and have a little more time um, to spend on on the thing that they enjoy. So it shouldn't be a, a scary thing to people that are thinking about. No, I think that's great. Yeah. And I mean, I would say with, you know, experience with our group here at Windermere, extremely like-minded people uh, who love to gather and socialize and, and, and enjoy golf. And it's just, yeah, it's a wonderful thing to be a part of. And um, certainly it doesn't, it, it is intimidating for a lot of people coming in, but once they kind of get a peek behind the curtain and start meeting some of the people, they realize that it's really not, 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 not as intimidating as it needs to be. Um, last two years, obviously pandemic golf scene, an incredible boom. Um, you know, in your eyes, you know, is, is this sustainable? Um, I don't think it's sustainable to necessarily keep everyone, but how do, what does golf need to do to keep some of these people in the game or, or will they just stay in the game because they've been here the last couple of years? What are your, what are some of your thoughts on kind of what the pandemic has, has brought and, and what will we see on the other side of it? Again, I mean, I, I look at, um, it's, it would be a luxury. It's something that people spend um, their discretionary time and, and income on. And, and because it was one of the few activities that were allowed to continue based on the setting and, uh, and the amount of space, et cetera, that it provides, um, you know, people had a lot of discretionary income that couldn't be traveled or elsewhere. And so it was one thing that they could do. So I think, you know, that probably accounts for a little bit of the, the spike. I, I see it probably dropping off once people are able to do some of the, the main things. But as a whole, I think, um, I think it gave golf a boost. I think some of those people are hooked and are going to stay. Um, I think it probably introduced some people that would never walk into a golf course or experience the game of golf and introduce people to that that normally never would have tried. And I think you're going to hook some of those people. So I, I think it was a, it was a huge positive um, in the otherwise negative situation. But um, I think the biggest thing with golf is just making people feel inclusive 
Um, and I'm not speaking so much about age or sex or race or, or any of that inclusive. Uh, I mean, that, that's important, but inclusive in golf would be between the, the hardcore, the veteran golfer and the new golfer. And um, I think as someone who has been a golfer for most of their life, and um, I feel pretty comfortable on the golf course and around uh, the property, I think there's a responsibility to be welcoming uh, to people that don't feel that way, people that are new to the game, people that don't know. Um, you know, when you arrive, you put your bag down, you go check in, you're putting green in the practice facilities, when you're out on the course, you don't have to put everything out and you feel free to pick it up if you need to. You don't have to leave yourself in the bunker and dig yourself a hole because you can't get out. You know, enjoy the game at the start. And I think it takes, um, it's not necessarily up to the staff because the staff isn't out there playing with them. They're not coming across them on the golf course and the practice facility and the lounge. Um, so I think it's existing members um, being welcoming and, and showing people the way um, because that's how you, you get people to feel comfortable. Um, golf ability, very few new golfers are good golfers when they start. And if they are, wow, that's a, that's a rare thing. Um, but man, if you have someone that can show you around the club, show you some of the, the tricks, teach you about pace of play and what, where to stand and how to just be a little more efficient and how you get around the golf course, all of a sudden that person feels more comfortable. And regardless of their playing ability, they're going to be drawn to the game. And they're going to spend more time there. And, and they're going to love the game a little bit more. So yeah. I think uh, in the game of golf, I think we need to promote more of that. Yeah, I agree. I think there's a way to make people feel welcome and educate them and have them learn without making them feel silly or out of place that strictly, you know, turns them off. And I would say from my perspective, I mean, even though you have the best handicap at this club, I would say you're probably one of the easiest members to play with um, because yeah, you just make people feel and it's not always the case, which is which is funny. I get lots of people that um, either pull themselves off the tee sheets or, or um, you know, make a comment even, well, I, I don't want to get in your way. It's like, trust me, you won't be in, in my way at all. And you explain to someone that, you know, is very self-conscious about, oh my gosh, all these people are watching me and stuff. And, and when you break it down, that golf is a very hard game. I guarantee everyone you're playing with is more worried about themselves and their own golf game and not so worried about you. So as long as you can keep up and, and do your own thing, um, you're going to fit in just fine. And, and people aren't going to, to judge you. And so then at the end of the round, lots of times I just go, wow, it was really enjoyable playing with you. And I never thought that you would be like that. Everyone assumes that I'm super... Um, as far as my rulings and where people drop, and I honestly don't care. I want people to enjoy playing this game at all. That's if people are enjoying the game, I enjoy it more. Yeah, my, your days of your, my skills are deteriorating, so um, it's it's sure nice to see other people make improvements and enjoy it. 
Absolutely. And celebrate that with them. Definitely. I mean, you're not going anywhere in golf and it's nice to retain those people and make them feel good about themselves. So uh, one last question for you and then we'll, uh, we'll let you go. Um, April 1st, 2033, are we seeing you out champions tour or, or anything like that? What are, what are Barrett's future aspirations in golf? You know, what does the next 10 years look like? And, and do you have any aspirations in, in golf outside of, uh, I mean, from a playing perspective at all or anything that you can share? I mean, first and foremost, I'd love to um, keep my body and my game in, in order and, and decent enough that I can play this game until I, until I go in the ground. Um, so that, that would be probably my first aspiration of the golf is make sure that I, I can kind of keep my, my physicality up and hopefully my health up where I can play it till the day I die. Um, other than that, I, I mean, I started playing amateur golf again. I got my amateur status back in 2015. And so um, while I, I really enjoyed that, I enjoyed getting together with people I haven't seen in a while, enjoyed competing again. And so I, I will continue to probably play the odd one here and there because um, I really do enjoy the people and the, the competition and, and everything about it. Um, as far as senior tour, I it would have to, I mean, if, if my body stays good and, and uh, work gives me time where I can, I can invest time into it, I get to that point in my life and I have time and, and funds to do so. Um, absolutely, that, that would be a, I think a pipe dream, but um, it, that would sure be fun. Um, if, you know, you get to 50 or close to 50 and you can start to put time and effort in and, and see if you could go and do that, that would be, uh, that would be fantastic. But um, for now, I think my, my aspirations are, uh, are just to, to uh, start to put in a little more time myself, practice when I can. And, um, and enjoy golf for, for what it gives me now, which is uh, gives me a nice outlet, a nice breakaway. Um, whenever I'm on the golf course, I, I immediately forget about whatever else in my life is, uh, is uh, stressing me out or whatnot. And uh, and I certainly still do enjoy the game and, and the people around it. So. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Barrett, for joining us on this episode of the PGA of Alberta podcast. We certainly appreciate you sharing your journey. Quite a an interesting journey in the game and, and, and it's certainly not done yet. So, so best of luck to you and, and obviously us here at Windermere moving forward and appreciate the time. Thank you very much, sir.